We are in uh, week three this week of our series on the biblical epistle of 2 Peter. Uh, our title for this series is Sure-Footed Faith, which comes from the memory verse that we said a few moments ago, uh, chapter 1, verse 10, which says, if you do these things, you will never stumble. And the things that Peter is teaching in this book that we are teaching in the sermon series will help you to know how to live a sure-footed life in which you will find that you're able to make it through the ups and downs and the difficult parts of life without stumbling. Of course, that's accomplished not by making your life all level, smooth, and easy. That's not what God does for you. What God does is he makes it so that you can make it through the hard parts. He gives us stability to get through the tough stuff. And that's why we really like the the uh, image of the boot with the crampon as the visual for this series. Because, you know, you don't wear a boot like that with a crampon like that when you're walking down the sidewalk, right? Those, that's not what those are for. You wear them when you're doing this. And that's what, uh, that's what we're talking about here. You see, the Bible knows that the Christian life is not easy. But doing the things that the Bible teaches makes us ready to keep on climbing and not be stopped even when the circumstances of our lives are difficult and it doesn't seem possible to continue on. So that's our series. Uh, But let's do a quick review of the first two weeks. There were two big points that I want to emphasize in this review that we saw in the first two weeks in 2 Peter. First one comes from uh, verse 3 where Peter tells us his divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him. This means that God has provided all the resources that we need in order to live a godly life. We will never find a situation where we just don't have what it takes to do the right thing and follow the godly path. God has given us everything we need to do what is right and to resist the temptation to sin. A godly life is possible for you. Not a perfect life, but a life that is characterized by greater and greater victory over sin and by being a force for good in the world and doing God's will. The second big idea is stated twice in verses 5 and 10 where he says, Therefore, Make every effort. God has given us the resources that we need, but spiritual growth is not a passive activity. We must cooperate with God and make use of the resources that he has provided so that we can become more like God. And this, according to verse 8, will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive. So both of these big ideas that we've seen so far are about spiritual growth. Because when someone becomes a Christian, when they first find salvation, when they put their faith in Jesus, um, that is certainly a great turning point in your spiritual life. And it might be the culmination of a big journey leading up to that point. However, it is not the end of your spiritual growth. The Christian life is to be one of continual climbing, continual improvement, continual spiritual growth. As we saw last week in verse 4, 
we said that our lives are a combination of the divine nature and the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. We're part one and part the other. And as we cooperate with God's work in our lives, we can shift the balance. We can become more like God. So this week, we're finishing up chapter one of 2 Peter. And this section is still on the topic of spiritual growth. Uh, in the la this last section, it is especially on the role of the Bible in spiritual growth that's emphasized here. And one of the key ideas we've already seen in this chapter is the importance of the knowledge of God. It is as our knowledge of God grows that we grow. And the more we know Him, the more we are able to be like Him. And the Bible is a key source of knowledge about God. So let's read these, uh, this section, the first verses of this morning's section. I'm going to start with uh, 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 12, where it says, So I will always remind you of these things, even though you know them and are firmly established in the truth. I think it is right to refresh your memory as long as I live in the tent of this body. Because I know that I will soon put it aside, as the Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. And I will make every effort to see that after my departure, you will always be able to remember these things. Peter knows that he is going to die soon. Uh, we don't know exactly what he means when he says Jesus has made that clear to him, but somehow he knows that his death is coming. And what does he want to do? Before he dies, he wants to make every effort, there's that same phrase again, to make sure that they remember these things that he has already taught them. He doesn't have any new ideas for them. It's the same things that they already know. In fact, he says that he knows that they're already firmly established in the truth. They know this stuff already. So why is it Peter's dying wish to make every effort to tell them the same things again? Why is this so important? What is it that Peter is afraid of? Does he think that these people have really bad memories and they will forget what he said? Like a couple years later, uh, somebody comes and says, hey, do you guys remember when that guy Peter was here and he told us about Jesus? And they say, oh, Peter, um, oh yeah, that Jewish fisherman guy. You told a bunch of stories, uh, something about Jesus. I don't... Is that what he's afraid of? Is he, is, is, does he think they're going to not remember? Not really. So what is it that Peter wants to take the last efforts of his life to prevent? What does he mean when he says he wants people to remember these things? It's more than just recalling the content of Peter's teaching. Peter wants to make sure that people actually remember the things that he is teaching in this letter in a real and practical way. The danger is not that these people will no longer know the truth about God. The danger is that they will live as if they don't know the truth about God. The danger is that they will just lose their focus. 
that they will behave in such a way that the gospel has no effect on the choices that they make. That they'll fail to make every effort to grow more in the faith. And they'll just go through the motions of being Christians. And we know that that's a real danger. In fact, we know that it happened later on to some churches that were in the same general area as these churches that uh, Peter is writing to. In the book of Revelation, which was written a few decades after this, um, Jesus sent a message to seven churches. And in one of those messages, in the, the, the message to the church at Ephesus, he says this, he says, Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. The people in that church had forgotten. They had forgotten. They had lost their zeal. They had lost their first love. Did they no longer recall the facts about Jesus? No, that wasn't their problem. In fact, Jesus praises them for their doctrinal accuracy in the verses just before this. But they had forgotten the truth nonetheless. And that is the mistake that we are all in danger of making. Maybe we could pass a test on Bible knowledge, but the truths that we know are not making us better people. Intellectual knowledge of the facts is not getting into our hearts and making us more like God. That's the danger. There's a danger that the truths of the Bible that we know in our heads don't make that 12-inch journey to our hearts. And we can have a lot of head knowledge, but hard, ungodly hearts. Of course, there's also the opposite danger. We can have soft, compassionate hearts with no actual knowledge of the truth of God. And we need to avoid both of those, those problems, right? And that is what Peter is encouraging us here when he says that he wants us to make every effort, or he's going to make every effort in his last days before he dies to make sure that his readers remember the things that they know. Now, after the sermon this morning, we're going to take the communion meal uh, in which we remember Jesus' sacrificial death for us and our spiritual dependence on him. And that's another way of, of, of acting out the same idea that Peter is saying here. Remember what you know. Think about these things as you make all those dozens of daily decisions that should be affected by your knowledge of the gospel. Remember. The next section of our passage this morning starts in verse 16. There it says, For we did not follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. What is Peter denying here? He's saying the gospel message about Jesus becoming a man, uh, being born of a virgin, laid in a manger, healing the sick and the blind, teaching about righteousness and the way of God, dying on a cross for our sins, raising from the grave, point, promising to come again in glory at the end of the age. All of that is not some cleverly devised story that he and the other apostles came up with. It's not a myth 
that Peter and the apostles came up with in order to start their own religion. The story of Jesus is an absolute historical fact, and Peter was an eyewitness to it. And the part of the story that he chooses to emphasize here is the part where Peter saw and heard that Jesus was God. It was because of this experience that Peter was totally confident in calling a man who he had spent three years walking with, eating with, talking with, joking with, fishing with. He knew this guy, and yet in the first verse of this letter, he calls him our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. See, in the Gospels, he describes his eyewitness experience of Jesus' majesty. Um, and he, he, he describes it uh, here in this next verse. He says, He received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory, saying, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. We ourselves, Peter says, heard this voice that came from heaven, and we were with him on the sacred mountain. Now that incident that Peter is referring to here is uh, described in three different places in the gospel stories. We usually refer to it as the transfiguration because Jesus uh, was transfigured or he was changed and his whole appearance was different. The, the, uh, his face changed and it says his clothes were as bright as a flash of lightning. The apostles were seeing Jesus revealed in his real glory. He didn't look like a normal person anymore. Jesus showed them a glimpse of the fact that he was more than human. He was God. And as Peter tells us here, the voice of God spoke from heaven and confirmed what they were seeing. And God said, this is my son whom I love with him I am well pleased. And that experience ended any doubts in Peter's mind about uh, who Jesus was and that he was God in the flesh. Peter still didn't understand everything about Jesus, but he knew who he was. And he would come, uh, Peter would come to understand that Jesus would be coming back in glory. And Peter had no problem believing it because he had already seen Jesus in his glory. He was an eyewitness. But Peter also has a word for those of us who weren't eyewitnesses. He says, we also have the prophetic message as something completely reliable. And you will do well to pay attention to it as to a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. We see from, that, uh, the, from the next verse, which we're going to get to in a moment, that the prophetic message that Peter is talking about here is the Scriptures. It's the Bible. Peter and the other founders of the church did not make this stuff up. They saw Jesus' glory with their own eyes and heard the voice of God testify as to who Jesus was. But even... Those of us who didn't see and hear those things still have the prophetic message as something completely reliable. The words of the Bible are trustworthy. The prophecies, that is, the messages from God, 
that are contained in the Bible are certain. And in an understated phrase, it says, you will do well to pay attention to it. Right? You will do well to pay attention to it. Pay attention to the Bible. It is a light shining in a dark place. You know, we don't really experience darkness very much anymore. Right? I mean, we live in a city where the streetlights all turn on. Well, they're on, like, light sensors, so it actually never gets dark. Um, and uh, and it's, it's actually really hard to find a place that's really dark in our world. Uh, but have you ever been on one of those cave tours where they go into one of those big underground uh, caves, Mammoth Cave or one of those? And on all the cave tours I've been on, I've done a few of them, um, they'll have a part of the tour where they'll, they'll turn off all the lights so that you can experience total darkness. And it's a weird thing to like put your hand up in front of your face and you can't tell whether it's there or not. There's absolutely nothing. It's so completely dark. But imagine if you are in uh, one of those things uh, uh, and, and there's just one little small light that the guide has and says, here, I will use this little light to lead you out of the cave. And you say to yourself, oh, you know, I think it's shorter to go back the way we came. And I know there's no lights back that way, but I think that I'll just turn around and find my way in the dark back the way we came, rather than following the light that is guiding us. The Bible is a light shining in a dark place, and we would do well to pay attention to it. Now, to most of you, this is not a new concept, right? You already know this. You already know this. You might even say that you are firmly established in this truth. And yet, even though Jesus has not yet revealed to me that I'm going to die soon, I also think that it's worth reminding you of these things that you already know, lest you forget. Lest you forget. What would it look like to forget that the Bible is a completely reliable and a light shining in a dark place? Do you open your Bible mostly on Sunday mornings? Or are you spending time daily reading God's Word? so that it can be a lamp to your feet and a light to your path? Are you paying attention to the messages from God in the Bible? Remember the lesson of the magic coloring book. <laughs> if you have a completely reliable word of God, but you don't read it, you might as well have a blank book. And even if you read it, you won't get the most out of it unless you spend time studying the Bible. So let the Bible be your light shining in a dark place so that it can guide you through your life. In verse 20, Peter continues to teach about the reliability of the Bible. He says, Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. The idea here is the same as a few verses back where Peter insisted that the preaching of the gospel was not based on cleverly devised stories. The various books of the Bible did not come about by the human author's wisdom and understanding. 
This book is not merely a collection of the best wisdom that people have come up with over the years about God and his ways. This is not a reflection of the best of human thinking about ethics and religion. This is not a human interpretation of things. For prophecy never had its origin in the human will, but prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. See, this verse is one of the best inside looks at the process that God used to, in the writing of the Bible. Again, the origin of the scriptures is not in the human will of the men who wrote it. The biblical authors spoke from God. That is, they were speaking God's message and not their own message. They're not saying, here's my message for you. Here's what I think you should do. They were saying, here is God's message for you. And when they sat down to write scripture, they were speaking for God. So how did that work? How did they know what to write? Well, it says they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Carried along by the Holy Spirit. We call that the inspiration of Scripture. Um, and there's a couple of incorrect understandings of how this worked that can help us to narrow down what it really does mean. First of all, inspiration was not dictation. Uh, there are a few times in the Bible where the authors actually heard a voice say, write this down. But mostly that's not how it worked. Um, and, uh, and, and beyond it not just being taking di dictation, the authors were not passive conduits of the message of God. As they, they just sat down with a clean piece of papyrus and a pen, and, or a quill, I guess, and, and just, uh, you know, start, and, and they wrote, so, and then they looked at it after, like, whoa, look what I wrote. Uh, that's not how it worked. They, they were not passive in this process. Inspiration is not dictation. The human authors were fully engaged in the writing process. God worked in them much more subtly so that the things that they wrote were the things that they wanted to say, uh, but they were also the things that God wanted to say. They were being guided and carried along by the Holy Spirit, not completely controlled by him like they were a ventriloquist dummy or something. But there's also an opposite error to avoid. The inspiration of the Bible is different from the, the, the idea of inspiration we sometimes have like for an artist. Uh, Steve Gordon, one of our elders, is going to be up here in a few minutes leading us in communion. And he is an, an artist. And he uh, paints mainly Alaskan landscape uh, paintings. And when Steve sees the beauty that God has created, and he's out in the... In the, in the um, in Alaska, and he sees this beautiful thing, he's inspired by it to paint. And it, it, it helps him, when he sees that, to see the, the beautiful things that God has made, and so he creates these amazing, beautiful works of art from the inspiration that he sees in nature. Or we might look at Christian songwriters who write beautiful songs that help us to worship God. They might even be inspired by particular themes in the Bible to write these great songs that, uh, that help us to worship God. 
They write great worship lyrics. But that kind of artistic inspiration is also not what we're talking about when we say that the Bible is inspired by God. It is not simply that the biblical authors thought about how great God is and they were inspired by his love for us and his greatness and so they wrote great books. The prophets of Scripture wrote from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So that means that uh, the Spirit was directly involved in the writing in a much greater way than just creating understanding and appreciation and maybe nudging someone to create a nice painting or to write a song or something. No, uh, the inspiration of the Bible is not dictation, nor is it simply inspired writing in the usual sense. Rather, the authors were carried along by the Holy Spirit so that the words that they wrote were the very words of God. In another part of the Bible, it's described this way. Uh, in the book of 2 Timothy, it says, All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. All Scripture is God-breathed. That is, it comes from the very mouth of God. They are the words of God. The authors were carried along. They were guided in such a way that their thoughts, their words, were exactly the thoughts and the words that God wanted them to write. And so we say that the Bible is the Word of God. Uh, what the Bible says, God says. And that is why it is a totally reliable guide for our lives, and we would do well to pay attention to it. Now, the main ideas of this message this morning may not have been new to most of you. Uh, you know these things, but it is good for us to be reminded of the things that we know so that we do not forget so I want you to take a moment right now to ask yourself whether you have been living as if you had forgotten the importance of the Bible. Have you been making your decisions based on the wisdom of God or on your own wisdom? Have you been paying attention to God's word as to a light shining in a dark place? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for giving us your word, for giving us that light that we need to find our way through life. We thank you that you have given us sure-footed faith so that we can find our way through the tough sections of life. Pray that we would know your word and apply it well. We ask this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.